We open the sacred scriptures to Matthew chapter 2. Once again, we will read the second half of the chapter, beginning at verse 13. Bring our short series on this chapter to a close. We're going to read verses 13 through 23, and verses 19 through 23 will be the text. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah, Was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. Now begins our text. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Thus far we read in the Holy Scriptures. Beloved in the Lord, as we have been working our way through Matthew chapter 2, we have observed that one of the inspired gospel writers' main goals is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, and to prove that from the Old Testament scriptures. Matthew wrote his gospel specifically for the Jews who had the Old Testament scriptures, and so time and time again, in this chapter and throughout the gospel, he appeals to the Old Testament and shows how Jesus' life and ministry, his words and his works, fulfill a multitude of prophecies throughout the Old Testament, indeed fulfills the entirety of the Old Testament, for the whole center of the scripture is Jesus Christ, his person and his work. Last time we looked at the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of Hosea 11 verse 1, 
in God calling his son out of Egypt. And we noted the typical significance of that event, namely that Jesus, who is the true son of God, who is the true Israelite, leads the true exodus. That is his work. He came to save his people from the real spiritual Egypt, the bondage of their sin. He is the perfect Israel who succeeds where the Old Testament Israel so often stumbled and fell. He is the perfectly obedient son, the mediator, the savior. And now, at the end of Matthew 2, our text focuses our attention on another prophecy. And this prophecy is interesting. We might say it is more obscure than the others. Because there is no specific text or prophet to whom or to which Matthew refers. He simply says that Jesus, after leaving Egypt with Mary his mother and with Joseph, after leaving Egypt, he ends up settling down in Nazareth. And that his settling down in Nazareth and his life there in Nazareth and his growing up there in Nazareth is the fulfillment of that which was spoken by the prophets, namely, he shall be called a Nazarene. And it is especially that last part, verse 23, that we're going to focus on. And unpack the significance of. He shall be called a Nazarene. At first glance that may seem somewhat insignificant. He's going to be called a Nazarene because he lived in Nazareth. Yes, that's part of it. But Matthew isn't here just telling us facts about Jesus' life. He is. But these facts are highly significant. That Jesus is called a Nazarene. Tells us something about who Jesus is. And what he came to do. And that's what we'll see this morning. Called a Nazarene. That's our theme. Called a Nazarene. Let's notice in the first place that this is a humble name. A humble title that is given to our Savior. Secondly, that is, it is a despised name. It is despised in the eyes of men. And finally, and marvelously, It being a humble name and a despised name leads us to see what a glorious name it is. Jesus, called a Nazarene. The history of our text shows us how the Lord Jesus came to be called a Nazarene. How he came to have this name or this title that he was not born with because he was born in Bethlehem. For some time, Joseph and Mary took refuge in Egypt. We don't know how long, perhaps a few months, perhaps a few years. And there, the young child, God's true son, retraced the steps of Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel, which had its national infancy in Egypt, and in God's timing was brought out of Egypt by the Exodus. We looked at that last time. But as God said... He would send word to Joseph when it was time to return to the land of Israel. And that's what we have in the beginning of our text in verses 19 and 20. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph, saying, Arise, 
and take the young child <clears throat> take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for they are dead which sought the young child's life God calls the holy family back to Israel just as he said God keeps his word That's an elementary application, but it's an elementary application we need to hear time and time again, is it not? Because it's very easy to doubt God's word. Think of Joseph and Mary living in Egypt. Before they left, when God God sent his angel with that message to Joseph to arise and to flee into Egypt, God said, stay there until I send you word. And so they went to Egypt. But while they were in Egypt, they did not get a progress report on how things were going back in Israel. They did not get updates from God as to how soon they could return. They simply had to wait until God, as he said, sent his angel to appear to Joseph again with instructions to return. Again, they had to trust and to wait And there's an application for us there in our lives. Waiting on the Lord. Even when his ways with us are strange. Those who wait on the Lord are never disappointed. People may fail you. People may not keep their word, but God always keeps his word. They who wait upon the Lord in faith shall never be disappointed. This history shows us that. God used the same mode of special revelation to bring this word to Joseph. An angel appeared to him in a dream. This consistency of mode in Revelation undoubtedly assured Joseph that this dream was from God. You'll notice that this second dream that God gives to Joseph closely parallels the first dream back in verse 13. In verse 13, God had said through the angel, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Now in verse 20, the very same language is used. Arise, take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. Just as in verse 13, God gave a reason that to that point was unknown to Joseph. Flee, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Now in verse 20, God also gives a reason to Joseph, which he did not know up to this point. For they are dead, which sought the young child's life. The threat of Herod is gone. Note, in God's words in verse 20, there is... Judgment, a note of judgment. They are dead which sought the young child's life. Herod. We know from history that Herod the Great died a very unpleasant death from the many diseases that ravaged his body. Diseases which were the direct consequence, many of them, from his many vices. God slew Herod. God slew Herod, that wicked man who sought to slay his son. And Psalm 2 verse 12 was literally fulfilled in Herod. Psalm 2 verse 
or Psalm 2 verse 12, which says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, adjacent to Jerusalem. Herod should have gone to kiss the Son, to bow in worship like the Magi had, but instead he plotted the destruction of the Son of God. And this was the judgment of God upon him. He perished in his way and received his due reward. After 37 years of tyranny, Herod was removed from this world, sentenced in hell. This revelation must have lifted the hearts of Joseph and Mary with joy. At last they could leave this strange land, leave behind the life of a sojourner and go back to Israel, go back to the promised land, go back to the synagogue, go back to friends and family. The greatest of relief also in hearing that the terrible threat of Herod was ended and gone. And so as we read on in the text, in verse 21, with the same promptness and unquestioning trust as was displayed in their obedience to God's first commandment, Joseph and Mary arise. Joseph takes the young child and his mother, and they came back to the land of Israel. You'll notice, as you look at verse 21, well, 20 and 21, that in this dream that God gave to Joseph, he did not give a specific destination where Joseph was to take the family and where he was to settle. God simply says, go back to the land of Israel. And so most likely, Joseph and Mary intended to return to Judea. And very likely, they they planned to go back to Bethlehem. That would make the most sense. That's where they were living after the birth of Jesus. They likely had an empty house waiting for them in Bethlehem. And you can imagine some other reasons that would stand behind Joseph and Mary intending to return to Bethlehem. Gabriel, when he had appeared to Mary, had said to Mary that the son whom she would bear, God would give him the throne of his father David. That he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. That his kingdom would have no end. Can you think of a more suitable place for the promised king to be raised than in Bethlehem, the city of David? Can you think of a more suitable place than the city of David, just a few miles away from Jerusalem, the city of the great king? It made perfect sense to go back to Bethlehem. It made perfect sense that this should be where the promised Christ would be raised. But that was not God's plan. When Joseph and Mary arrived back in the land of Israel, they were met with some rather disturbing news. Verse 22, Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod. We know from history that after Herod the Great died, his large realm 
The large area of land, which was much of Palestine, over which he held sway, was divided up among three of his sons. Philip, his son Philip, received Iteria and Trachonitis, regions beyond Jordan. And this Philip was the Philip who was married to Herodias. Another one of Herod's sons, named Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas is the one who took Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and who executed John the Baptist for preaching against that sin. Herod Antipas received rule over Galilee and Perea. And yet another one of Herod's sons, Archelaus, was given rule over Judea and Samaria. Now this Archelaus, the text tells us when Joseph heard that he was in the room of his father Herod, meaning he took the place of his father Herod as ruler over Judea, Joseph was afraid to go thither. And humanly speaking, there was good reason for this. History tells us a little bit about this Archelaus. Archelaus inherited a double dose of his father's temperament and cruelty, but very little of his father's cleverness. Archelaus's name fits him. The Greek name Archelaus means ruler of people. And that's how Archelaus saw himself. He was a pompous and wicked man who loved to exercise crushing power over those that he ruled. In fact, he inaugurated his rule with a great slaughter. One of his father, one of his father's last deeds before his, do- before his death, before Herod the Great died, Herod had a couple of Jewish leaders executed for pulling down a golden eagle that he had placed above the temple gate. That was one of the last acts of Herod the Great before he succumbed to his diseases. Well, after Archelaus took over in Judea, Archelaus learned that many Jews, after the Passover celebration, were mourning the death of those Jewish leaders. They had seen them as martyrs. And Archelaus was so enraged that he sent his soldiers to surround the temple complex. And in cold blood, he butchered over 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem. That took place right at the beginning of Archelaus' reign. And so if Joseph and Mary were coming back to Israel... Shortly after Herod's death, at the beginning of Archelaus' reign, we can surmise that that was one of the events that Joseph and Mary heard about as they returned into Israel. That there was another tyrant upon the throne in Jerusalem. That explains Joseph's fear. As an aside, Archelaus was such a bad ruler and such a wicked man that only... A few years into his reign, Caesar Augustus intervened and deposed him and exiled him to the fringes of the Roman Empire. An intriguing question arises here. In verse 22, Joseph was afraid to go thither. Was that right of Joseph? Was that a sinful fear? The impression that the text leaves us is that it was not. God had given Joseph a general instruction to return to Israel. God had said, they are dead which sought the young child's life. And that was true. That was specifically about Herod. With Herod's death, 
there was an end to the active seeking of Jesus' life. But Archelaus was still a threat. And thus, in verse 22, we read, Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, God sent message to Joseph once again in a dream. And the word there is the very same word that is used earlier in Matthew 2 to describe God's warning to the Magi not to go back to Herod, but to go home another way. Same word is used. And so the impression that the text gives us, the distinct impression, is that God warned Joseph once again to steer clear of Judea. And this second warning of God guided Joseph, as we read near the end of verse 22, to go to the parts of Galilee. By these dreams, God was providentially leading Joseph and Mary to settle down in one particular city in the parts of Galilee where God designed for his son in the flesh to grow up and come to maturity and spend most of the years of his earthly life. Verse 23, And he came, he dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Nazareth was, humanly speaking, the most logical place for Joseph and Mary to settle after they were guided by the hand of God to Galilee. The reason for that is Nazareth was Mary's hometown. That's very clear from Luke 1 verse 26, which records Gabriel's appearance to Mary. And Luke 1 verse 26 tells us that Gabriel appeared to Mary in Nazareth. And that makes it very clear. That's where, that's where Mary lived. That was her hometown. And Luke 2 verse 9 also strongly implies that Joseph was from Nazareth as well. Luke 2 verse 9 tells us that after the decree of Caesar Augustus that the Roman world should be taxed, Joseph and Mary head out for Bethlehem from Nazareth. And that strongly implies that that's where Joseph was from as well. That's where Joseph lived. And so this being their old hometown before they had moved to Bethlehem, it was most natural that upon returning to Galilee, Joseph and Mary would settle in Nazareth. Yet behind it all is the hand of God bringing to pass what he has ordained for his son. Nazareth was a small city. It was a small town in the former tribal allotment of Zebulun. And it was situated in the rocky hill country directly south of Cana of Galilee. Luke 4 verse 29 tells us that it was built on the brow of a hill. On the crest of a hill as cities often were in that day to afford some measure of protection. You remember what happens in Luke 4. That Jesus, after preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, near the beginning of his ministry, he's there rejected, and many of the people of Nazareth try to throw him off the side of one of those rocky cliffs outside of town. And so that's how we can envision Nazareth. It was a, a town, a smaller village, situated on the brow of a hill, surrounded by rocky cliffs and hills. Here, 
Jesus would spend his childhood, grow up into adulthood, until the appointed time when he would begin his ministry. That is the historical reason why Jesus came to be called a Nazarene. And why throughout the New Testament he is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth rather than as Jesus of Bethlehem. Though he was born in Bethlehem, he lived, he grew up, he spent most of his life in Nazareth. He's called a Nazarene. But now let's start digging into the significance of that name, that title which is here in our text first given to Jesus. He is called a Nazarene. At this point, it's important to distinguish a Nazarene from a Nazarite. A Nazarene and a Nazarite, though they sound similar, are two very different things. A Nazarite was a person in the Old Testament who took a vow for a certain period of time to be set apart and consecrated to the service of the Lord in a special way. You can read about the laws that governed the vows in the lives of Nazarites in Numbers chapter 6. And there were three specific things that signified that someone was a Nazarite and was fulfilling a Nazarite vow. While they were under the Nazarite vow... Persons had to abstain from all strong drinks and fruit of the vine. A razor was not allowed to touch their head. They weren't allowed to cut their hair. And they were forbidden from touching dead bodies. Perhaps the children here can think of the most well-known Nazarite in the Old Testament. Think about it for a second. And perhaps the name Samson comes to mind. That's a Nazarite. But nowhere in scripture does Jesus receive the title Nazarite. Nowhere in scripture is Jesus pictured as a Nazarite. He did not take that kind of vow. And he couldn't have. After all, he turned water into wine. And he partook of wine. Think of his institution of the Lord's Supper. He touched the dead body of the son of the widow of Nain, as he stretched out his hand and touched the beer and raised that young man from the dead. Jesus took the 12-year-old daughter of the ruler of the synagogue by the hand as he raised her from the dead. Jesus was not a Nazarite, but Jesus was a Nazarene. And a Nazarene was simply an inhabitant of Nazareth. So keep those two terms distinct in your mind. A Nazarite, someone who takes a vow and is consecrated for a certain period of time to serve God in a special way. A Nazarene, simply someone who lived in the town of Nazareth. But now, to be called a Nazarene was a thing of humility for Jesus. It's a humble name. It's a name that expresses the lowliness of our Lord. And in this way reveals something about who he is as our Savior. 
Nazarene tells us something about Jesus. He comes to be our humble Savior. There's a couple of points to see here. First, the mere fact that Jesus takes a name that is tied to a certain place and a certain point in time and history reveals his humility. Nazarene, an inhabitant of a little town, Nazareth, in Galilee. Jesus, as to his person, is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, according to his divine nature, is everywhere present, is eternal, completely outside and above time. He is the Son of the Highest. The Word. The Word by whom all things were made. The Word by whom time itself was made. The Word by whom space itself was made. He is God. But at the wonder of the Incarnation, the eternal, everywhere present Word becomes flesh. And part of his becoming flesh is that he submits himself to the confines, the limitations, the restrictions, the boundaries of time and space. Jesus becomes fully man. A real man. Meaning he was born at a certain time in history. He lived for a certain period of time. He lived in a certain place. And as a real man, the environment in which he grew up had an influence on him. He was a Galilean. He spoke with a Galilean accent. He was touched, you might say, influenced, you might say, in his humanity by his upbringing in Nazareth. He was a Nazarene. That emphasizes. His real humanity and the humility of Christ in the assumption of that humanity. He is one of us. Just as you might say, I'm from Zealand, Michigan, or Hudsonville, Michigan. I live in the 21st century in the United States of America. I'm descended from this or that family. You're rooted in a specific place and in a certain time in the history of this world. So too with Jesus. He assumed that aspect of our humanity as well. He entered the time and space that he created and took upon himself the humble name, Nazarene. But now Jesus' humility comes out all the more when we think about what kind of place this name, Nazarene, tied Jesus to, so to speak. What was Nazareth? It wasn't Jerusalem, the city of the king, with the temple and with its splendor. Nazareth 
and it's depicted this way in Scripture, was a place of little to no significance. It was some village in Galilee, the backwater of the Roman Empire, that the Son of God should assume a name that is tied to a specific place. That itself shows His humility, but that He should take upon Himself the name of a place of no significance, of no account in the eyes of men, stresses all the more the marvelous humility of our Savior. He came down from heaven not to land in an earthly throne, Not to land in a position of power or a place of influence or a place of wealth, but he comes down from heaven to land in a little village of absolutely no significance. And throughout his earthly life in ministry, he is called by the name of that insignificant place, Jesus of Nazareth. Truly, as Philippians 2 verse 7 says, He made himself of no reputation. That he might save people such as we are. Every time we see a facet of Jesus' humility, Let it humble us. So that again with the wise men, our knees hit the floor and our faces too as we worship this Savior, this King. When we see His humility, the depths to which He went for us. When we think about how high and exalted Jesus is as God and we see the lowliness of His humanity Does it not lift our hearts with praise for him? God's love, God's grace, God's mercy is seen most clearly and beautifully in the humility of Christ. Look at the lengths God goes. For you and me, and for his people, to save us and redeem us and bring us into his covenant fellowship and lift up us lowly creatures of the dust and sinners besides, creatures who are of little significance, no significance, you might say, in comparison to the vastness and the glory of the one only true and living God, Christ makes himself of no reputation. To fill us with his blessings. A humble name that humbles us in worship of the one who bears the name Nazarene. And as his people then, we have the privilege of bearing that name too. We are the followers by grace of the Nazarene. And thus another application rolls out of that. Our character ought to reflect our master. 
As the Apostle Paul exhorts the church in Romans 12 verse 16, Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. As we look upon the humility of Christ, we are instructed, This is how we honor Him. By being a people humble towards our God and humble towards one another. This is our high calling and privilege to reflect the humility of Jesus Christ. To be a people who are not obsessed with the glory of this world or the riches of this world or the praise of men. To be a people who are not seeking above all things to be great in the eyes of men but a people who are glad to identify with our Savior who bears the humble name Nazarene. Glad to be of no account in men's eyes for the sake of faithfulness to the Nazarene. Finally, Jesus taking the name Nazarene Shows us the vanity of earthly honor and glory. That's not not what is most important. Being famous. Being prominent. Having riches. Being acclaimed by men. Is of little real significance. So beloved. If this morning. You feel like you're nothing. Because you have a very humble and lowly name. Perhaps you're a person who's overlooked a lot. Perhaps you don't have a prominent family. Perhaps you're poor. Perhaps for various reasons you're despised in the eyes of men. You're in good company. You're in good company with none other than Jesus himself, the Nazarene. Be comforted in that. Worldly fame. Worldly glory, those things don't matter. What truly matters is belonging to Jesus. And the life that is truly rich is the life of walking with Jesus and being like Jesus, the Nazarene. Nazarene, it's not only a humble name, but now... Digging deeper, we come to really the core of the text. It is especially a despised name. A despised name. And that gets at the prophetic significance of this name that Matthew would have us see. That Jesus shall be called a Nazarene means ultimately this, that he shall be despised and rejected of men. That is also the kind of Savior he came to be. A humble Savior. And a part of that humility is that he submits himself to the unjust contempt, reproach, and rejection of men. Matthew states that the prophets foretold that Christ would be called a Nazarene. Verse 23. He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So this raises the question, what prophecy, what prophet does Matthew have in mind here at the end of verse 23? Unlike the previous three prophecies 
that Matthew has shown Jesus fulfilled here in Matthew 2. In verse 23, Matthew does not cite a specific prophet or Old Testament passage. And that's different from the rest of them in the chapter. For example, in Matthew 2 verse 6, Matthew quotes Micah 5 verse 2. It's very easy to identify what he's talking about. In Matthew 2 verse 15, which we looked at last week, there is a clear reference to Hosea 11 verse 1. And in Matthew 2 verses 17 and 18, Matthew even names the prophet Jeremy, that is Jeremiah, and connects the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem with the prophecy of Jeremiah 31 verse 15. But here in our text, no specific passage is cited. And there's also this difference. Notice, Matthew says, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, plural. In all of the cases before this, it was singular, by the prophet. He had a specific prophet in mind, but here he uses the plural. And the gist of it is that Matthew views Jesus being called a Nazarene. He views that as the fulfillment of the prophets as a whole. All of the prophets together pointed to this reality that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. The Christ would be a Nazarene. So the question is, how does that work? Because when you look through the Old Testament, you're not going to find a specific Bible verse that says the promised Messiah is going to live in a village called Nazareth. You're not going to find a specific prophecy that says the name Nazarene will be given to the Christ. The key to understanding this is twofold. First, Matthew is saying that the prophets as a whole prophesy the reality signified by the term Nazarene. That is, Matthew is saying that the Old Testament prophets as a whole weren't so much prophesying that the Christ would live in a certain geographical area, but they were prophesying that the Christ would be all that this term Nazarene implies. Namely, that he would be humble and that he would be despised and rejected. All the prophecies that foretold that the Christ would be despised and rejected of men are fulfilled in Jesus being called a Nazarene. Because that name, Nazarene, is a title of reproach. It would be used as a brand of contempt. It would signify rejection by men. 
And when you read through the New Testament, you see that reality very clearly. Nazareth was a city in Galilee. Galilee itself was looked down upon by the inhabitants of Judea. In Judea there was Jerusalem. In Judea was the temple. In Judea was the center of Jewish religious life and culture. Galilee was called Galilee of the nations because there was so much intermixing with Gentiles. It was far up north, past Samaria. It was the backwater. It was the place where the uneducated and the uncultured and the less pure Jews lived. That is, in the mind of the Judean Jews. They even had their own accent that the Bible notes several times. An accent that made them stick out. You could hear and know a man to be a Galilean just from the way that he spoke. Think of John 1. Philip comes to Nathanael. Philip is excited. Philip says in John 1 verse 45, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what was Nathanael's response in the very next verse? Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? There you see Nazareth was in the eyes of many a contemptible city. This wasn't the private prejudice of Nathaniel. This was a commonly held view in that day. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And that's made all the more striking when you remember that Nathaniel himself is a Galilean. Even among the people of Galilee, the city of Nazareth stood out as a place of particular insignificance, out of which nothing good could be expected. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, when he was called Jesus of Nazareth, that was not only to distinguish him from others who might have had the Hebrew name Joshua. But when that name, Jesus of Nazareth, was taken up in the mouths of our Lord's enemies and opponents, it was meant as a reproach. It was meant to be derogatory. It was an expression of the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. You are not the Christ. You are not a prophet of God. You are Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth from which nothing good can ever come. A despised name. A name signifying Rejection by men. When Matthew says, he shall be called a Nazarene, and that it is the fulfillment of what was spoken of by the prophets, what Matthew is saying is that Jesus being called a Nazarene, and Jesus being all that that term implies, humble, despised, rejected, He is the fulfillment of what the prophets proclaimed. And now we can see how that works. David in Psalm 22 verses 6 and 7 said, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They they shake 
the head. David experienced that, but as David, by inspiration, wrote those words of the psalm, it was prophetic of the Nazarene, Jesus Christ. In another psalm, it is prophetically spoken. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren, and an alien unto my mother's children. That was fulfilled in the life of Christ. Let your mind go back to Luke 4, where Jesus goes back home to Nazareth. And he preaches in the synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah 61, and he says, I am the Christ, come to preach good tidings. And the other Nazarenes reject him. So rejected of men is Jesus, that the other Nazarenes Try to lay hold of him and throw him off the cliff outside of town. He is the rejected Savior. Perhaps the words of Isaiah 53 verse 3 come to mind. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He shall be called a Nazarene. A title of reproach. That's why... God ordained and providentially brought to pass that his son, though born in Bethlehem, would not grow up in Bethlehem of Judea, nor in Jerusalem, the city of the great king, but would grow up in lowly, unesteemed Nazareth of Galilee. Because this also reveals the kind of savior Jesus came to be, And how Jesus would accomplish his saving work. Nazarene shows us his humility. But it shows us another dimension of his work. Namely, that he would be the suffering savior. And a big part of his suffering. Is that he bears the unjust reproach of men. And suffers the rejection. Of those who should have received him. comes to be a rejected savior. He saves. By being reproached. And rejected for us. Consider. Hebrews 12 verse 3 says. Consider him. That endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. That was Christ. Constantly contradicted and spoken against and reproached and scorned. Though he was the perfect son of God in the flesh. First Peter 2 verse 23 says, When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He came to be the perfect suffering savior. And that suffering... Of reproach and rejection came to its peak at the cross of Calvary. You look at the history of Jesus' life and ministry and you see that reproach 
and that rejection increase and intensify. And it comes to its peak at Calvary. At Calvary we see Jesus, the Nazarene, despised and rejected of all. Despised by men. All the Jews that walked by railed against him, wagging their heads and wagging their tongues. The Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they stood there. They mocked him. Pontius Pilate hammered that superscription above his head. And the writing was, according to John 19 verse 19, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And there was mocking in that. Jesus of Nazareth. The most painful rejection. That the rejected Christ. The Nazarene experienced for you and me. Was the rejection of God forsakenness. That's the pain that the Savior endured on the cross. That far exceeded the nails. And the railings and the revilings of men. That was the pain and the suffering that drew out of his mouth the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus suffered the incomprehensible fullness of being the Nazarene. Forsaken of the Father, as the wrath of the Holy One against the sins of of you and me and all God's people who deserve to be rejected by God as that wrath against our sins is poured out upon Him in our place. There is Christ the Nazarene, our Savior. Who for the joy that was set before Him, The joy of taking us to be his people for eternity. For that joy endured the cross, despising its shame. And is now set down at the right hand of God. Because Jesus is the Nazarene. We are delivered. Because of the work of the Nazarene. You and I. We'll never be Nazarenes in the eyes of God. In this sense, we will never be rejected of Him. We will never know what it is to be despised and contemptible in His eyes. Because of the work of the Nazarene who was rejected for us, we are accepted and received as children of God. How that name Nazarene takes on A new tone for us, doesn't it? Though a humble name, though a despised name, what a sweet and blessed name it is, child of God. A concluding application here. Jesus was called the Nazarene for us, rejected of men for our salvation. And now as the redeemed who belong to him, we are called to be Nazarenes unto him. That is, it's a fundamental part of the Christian life now. And a privilege that we suffer and are reproached for his sake. And are willing to face the rejection of men. The rejection of the world for the sake of the Christ who died for us. Take Paul as an example. The reproaches that fell upon the Nazarene fell upon his apostle. 
Acts 24 verse 5, the Jews come to accuse Paul before the Roman governor Felix. And they charge him with being a pestilent fellow, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That was a derogatory term that was quickly applied to Christians by the Jews who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And is roughly equivalent to the term Christian, which was used as a derogatory term among the Gentiles. That's who we are. We are the Nazarenes, the Christians, those who belong to Jesus. And who are called to suffer for his sake. And to bear his reproach. With Moses. Let us esteem the reproach of Christ. Greater than the riches and treasures of Egypt. And let us be encouraged in that suffering. It's our calling as Christians to bear whatever crosses our Lord and Savior lays upon us. This is a privilege. But we have this comfort. As Romans 8 verse 17 says, If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We have the privilege of sharing both the sufferings and the glory of the Nazarene. And thus, 1 Peter 4, verse 13 says, Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Thus, to us, this humble, this despised name is a glorious name. It's glorious in God's eyes, and it's marvelous in our eyes, for it shows us how God takes the base things, the foolish things, the things that are of little repute among men, and reveals his glory in them. In the name Nazarene, we see the wonder of the cross. Just as the nail prints in Jesus' hands, Those nail prints, which were the marks of the most terrible sin perpetrated by humankind. Those nail prints, which were the marks of Jesus' indescribable suffering. Those nail prints become the marks, the everlasting marks of his love and his grace for his people. So too, the name Nazarene, which is a name that is humble, a despised name, a title of reproach, becomes... A name of glory showing forth the majesty of Christ the King. Christ who is unlike any other king. Christ who establishes his kingdom by lowliness. Christ who conquers his enemies by giving himself unto death. Christ who saves his people by dying in their place. And giving his own life. The Christ who conquers by the cross. Christ, the Nazarene, who humbled himself to the lowest and who is now the most highly exalted. What a glorious name. What a glorious name for us to bear in the midst of this world. Be not ashamed, beloved, to be identified with Jesus Christ. 
Be not ashamed of your Savior. Be not ashamed of His Gospel. Confess His name boldly. Bear His reproach gladly. Boasting only ever in the cross. Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is called a Nazarene. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the rich truth set before us in this name of our Savior. We thank Thee for His humility. We thank Thee that He was despised and rejected for us, that we might be accepted of Thee. Grant that this truth may encourage us to persevere joyfully, even in the midst of our trials, that we may bear our crosses for Jesus' sake, looking unto the glory that he has obtained, and which we in due time shall share with him. We ask this in his name. Amen.